0: Hey everybody, my name is not Bo, it's Kathy O. <laughs> Kathy O, and I am an active member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon, and, which includes Alateen, and my home group is the Macon um, AFG group in Macon, Georgia. I don't know if I'm supposed to thank Jody and Bill for this opportunity or not, Um <laughs> I got an email, I was out of town actually, and I got an email from Bill kind of late Monday night and he said, "Um, I need a replacement speaker. And I wrote him back and I said, oh wow. (laughs) Um, He asked me, he said, would you consider? And I said, Bill, you know, I've been to a lot of these before and I've never spoken at a a convention. And I'm not what I would call a circuit speaker. And um, I said, if you cannot find anybody else after <laughs> after you have prayed, I will. I will do it. I mean, I'm not going to leave our program high and dry with no speaker at all. Um, if you're kind enough to come, you know, I will at least share with you what God has done through. In my in my life through this program, and so anyway, I guess I'm going to say thank you, Bill, and and thank you, Jody, um, thank you for the basket that I got when I got here today um, yesterday. It was very kind and very generous. Um, but I just um, anyway, if y'all will when I. One of my friends um, that travels with me, Lucy, I called her on Tuesday and said, "Lucy, they have asked me to be the speaker and the first thing out of her mouth was "That's okay. Nobody shows up for those meetings anyway <laughs> and and then I you know immediately said, "Well, you know that's true. I mean, um y'all have you know golf scheduled during this speaker meeting. You have the motorcycle scheduled during this meeting, so you know, for those of you who chose to come, I, I guess I'm very grateful that you did. Um, because to be honest with you, as God has spoken to me in the last three or four days, He He has assured me that I'm, saying, I'm up here because this is a part of my journey. And this is what He has asked me to do. And I, so I said, but if that's what you want me to do, then why can't I just do it in front of the bathroom mirror? <laughs> but... Uh, So anyway, thank you for at least showing up and um, if you will, let me just have a moment more of silence before I get um, started telling you my story, okay? Thank you. I was born in Macon, Georgia. My mom and my dad met in college. My mother is the daughter of an alcoholic. My grandfather quit drinking before I was ever before she ever married my dad. <clears throat> my dad's family did not drink at all. There was never alcohol in my family. My parents did not even social drink. I was a Southern Baptist my parents were Southern Baptists, I should say. And so they were very um, strict on things like that. And so there was no alcohol in our home whatsoever. Um, I think as I look back on my uh, my life, that because my mother came from chaos, because of her alcoholic father, and she went to something like 30 elementary schools in her growing up age, because her father, her real father, left her when she was four years old. And so my granny started just running from one house to another, one relative to another. I think that my mother needed to control when she got married. She needed to have that control in her family. And so as I think back on that, I, I, I know that that's where I got a lot of my traits the reason that I am a control person, that I like to control things around me. Um, my, my granny did d- divorce my real grandfather, my blood grandfather, but I never knew him. But my granny then married another alcoholic, and that's the one that I call my grandpa, and he's the one that quit drinking before my mother um, ever married my dad. So like I said, there was never alcohol in our family at all. Um, It was only until I came to you that you taught me that the traits that my granny learned from living with active addiction and the traits that my mother learned, they were passed on to me. And I think that's one reason that sometimes I tell a different kind of a story because it really, to me, shows me how powerful alcoholism is, that it can go from one generation to another, and we not even know that we've been affected by it. I came into this program and it was a year and a half later that I realized that I was here because of my own family it wasn't because of the people that I was uh, having relationships with it was because of my own family the other relationships added to it but but it really I qualified I qualified before I ever had any kind of relationships with other people and I just did not know that I am the second child of four, my mother had all four of us in four and a half years. That's what I say. <laughs> Being in that Southern Baptist home, it was very rigid, very strict, very legalistic Christian home. We, My mother loved everything to be organized, we lived in a routine. Even Um, At Christmas, um, when we were little children and we were waiting on Santa Claus to come, pretend this is the Christmas tree, my parents laid out throw rugs. And there would be one here around the tree, one here, one here, one here. And when they allowed us to go into the living room, we knew exactly which rug was ours. My rug was right here. So anything on that rug was mine. And we were discouraged not to go and mess with the stuff on the other rugs. So you would have thought that as a young kid I would have had boundaries real early in age because... I knew where my hula hoop, my rug was, but evidently I, I, I missed that later on in my life. But but anyway, we had our own rugs where every, all of our toys were set, and um, we went to church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. Um, we went on vacations together, but because my dad was a banker and he did not make a lot of money, my mother never worked outside the home. Um, we ended up camping um my grandparents lived in Orlando, Florida, and so we would go to see them every summer. But when I was nine years old, we started camping and i and I ended up loving camping and to this day um well, I don't do it anymore I mean if I had the opportunity, I would, but i love I love the outdoors and I love nature and um camping just ended up being what we did in our family a lot and so there was a lot of togetherness at that time i was a tomboy i loved to play um i loved to be mischievous uh, to some degree but i i think in a lot of ways i was also i had i had a kind of different personality i was shy in a lot of ways and yet also i was i was very playful and outgoing um <coughs> My daddy taught that his way was the right way. He was a very harsh man and um and he was very- um very harsh towards me as the oldest girl and uh so if if I didn't think his way then i i i always felt real stupid around him um because well, he didn't say I was stupid, but he, he would say things like, I don't want to hear from you. I don't want to hear your opinion. And he was real harsh, like I said. And so he would yank us up, especially, especially I think, my older brother and I. I think we got the brunt of it because we were the old oldest boy, oldest girl. But he would yank us up by the hair or either take his knuckles and hit us over the head. Um, when I was spanked, I, you know, there were several times that I was bruised and so forth. So he, like I said, he was real, real harsh, which which has been kind of a um, something that I still at times struggle with because I knew that my parents loved me; they supported me in everything. As I c- continued to grow, I started singing solos when I was nine years old, and. um and of course, I being tomboy, I was athletic, and so I would do sports and things like that and my parents always went they always they loved me enough that they supported me and they went to everything, so I knew I was loved in that way, and yet emotionally, my mama couldn't say, "I love you," my daddy couldn't say, "I love you," we didn't hug, we didn't kiss um I remember when I was a really, really little bitty girl, probably before I was five or six. Um I would hold my daddy's hand at church. But other than that, I don't remember tenderness in our home. And that did affect me. As a teenager, it affected me very much. Um and my relationship with my dad um it really almost became non-existent because I couldn't talk to him. Um my dad he 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 did not want to hear from me. I felt a lot of fear in front of him. And so I would go to my mom. My mom was my go-to person. And if I needed to tell them something or him something, I needed him to know something, I would tell her, which, of course, she was our switchboard and she told him. And um, I'm grateful for that because, you know, because otherwise I think um, if she had not been there to do that, I'm not sure how my relationship would have been with him. Um, It It would have been more non-existent than it did. I didn't really feel like I fit in with a lot of the teenagers um, um, when when we were growing up because so many of them were so um, interested in um, doing all kinds of stuff with boys and all that kind of stuff. I was still wanting to play and cut up and all that kind of thing. I, I didn't mind doing things with groups and stuff, but I was not a... Uh, um, very forward girl, I'm going to put it that way. And so I just wasn't like a lot of the girls and so forth. But I usually would have like one or two friends, but I didn't have what I would call a lot of friends. I went off to college when I was 18, and um, and when I got there, um, I think that was the first time, well, no, when I was a senior in high school, that was the first time I'd ever seen anybody take a drink. Um, I saw a, a a teacher, take a gla- uh, she drank a glass of wine, and it was around me. That was the first time I'd ever seen anybody take a drink. Um, of course, I knew people drank, but I didn't know anything about it. When I went off to college, I still didn't see people drinking, but I saw the results of it. Um, people would come in our dorm, and they would be throwing up, and they would be loud, and all those kinds of things that you all thought was fun. But... Um, <laughs> But, you know, I just didn't ever get involved in that. And um, I had told God when I was 12 years old um, that I would never drink. And um, by the grace of God, I have never drank. I have never tasted alcohol. And I just wasn't a partier. I was, all right, let's just get real honest. I was. I lived a sheltered life. Um, I just didn't know. And um, so... Um, Anyway, I just lived a sheltered life, and I know I probably just lost more than half of the audience right there cause, <laughs> because you can't relate to that at all. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but uh, like I said, I'm just pretending I'm saying this in front of the mirror in the bathroom because um, this is for me, not for you. Um, but emotionally, um, you know, I was I had an emptiness inside of me. And um, and relationally, in a lot, lot of ways, I did. But as I went to college and I majored, um, well, I majored in a performing major, I mean, of all things, um, I majored in music. And um, so, therefore, you know, what did I like to do? But I can stand up and sing in front of you all and not get all that nervous, but standing up and tell my story, that's another story. But um, anyway... Um, I, so I had friends that liked me, but it probably was more because of what I could do, more than who I was. And um, I had um, several roommates in college. Several of them drank. Several, at least one of them drank alcoholically. But when I graduated from college, um, I, I, had, I got a roommate. I didn't want to move back home, and I started teaching uh, school. And um, I had a roommate, and she was an alcoholic. But she quit drinking before we ever started living together. And, of course, I thought um, that part of that reason was because she had seen how wonderful my life was. <laughs> and so she wanted to be probably just like me. Um, when I think of things like that today, it's almost embarrassing to tell you that that I have that arrogance about me or that I can have that arrogance about me. You know, the first thing I wanted to say up here this morning was apologize to you that I'm your substitute replacement speaker. But then I thought about it and I said, no, that's, that's your ego, that's your arrogance. Don't do that, and so I said, "Okay, God, I'm just trusting you on this. This is what you have for me and possibly for you and um so it's the same thing when i when I started living with this girl, I thought um I thought she was living with me because she saw what a wonderful life I had going to church, you know all these kinds of things and uh And she had quit drinking, and so we we enjoyed um, that relationship and everything. But later she started drinking, and, and of course, I thought that was my fault. Um, I guess, you know, it was all about me, and um, I hate to say that, but it was all about me. I thought I had done something wrong. I thought that I had not said what I needed to say. Maybe I hadn't prayed the right way. Maybe I haven't. I, I don't know what I thought. But I thought that the reason she started drinking was because of me. And I I realized today that my spiritual life started going downhill in a spiral at that time because I was already becoming what I would call like a codependent upon somebody like that. And um, she would have blackouts. I remember one time um, on the piano in our apartment, she took her hand and she just wiped everything off the piano. and um, She didn't know she did that, and um, the next day I went and picked up after her. I was always picking up after her. I think we lived together about three and a half years, and then I I just couldn't take it anymore. And she ended up wanting to leave, too. Um, She knew that I wasn't the kind of roommate that she wanted, and so she moved out, and and then I eventually um, moved back home with my parents, which I didn't ever want to do. But, see, I was one of these people that um, wasn't secure, with myself, and I didn't want to live by myself. I didn't want to live alone, and so um, I didn't want to uh, find my own place. And so I moved back home with my parents. And again, my parent, my my relationship with my dad was volatile. It was just, it was just not a good place for me to be because when I would say something, then we would butt heads, and it was just not a good place to be. But I lived there about six months, and I met another girl on a uh, church retreat, and we decided, you know, that we would start living together and have, you know, live as roommates and stuff. And um, but she, she wasn't an alcoholic, but she was an overeater. Okay, Um, I guess you would call it a foodaholic or something like that. Um, she didn't go to Overeaters Anonymous or anything, but she went to Weight Watchers. And um, But I started thinking I was responsible for her weight loss. Um, I, you know, I, I know, I know, I don't know why, I, you know, what, what makes us think the way we do? You know, what makes, I don't know, you know. Except that there's usually a spiritual hole somewhere inside of us, and we're trying to fill it, but I was I ended up being the cook of the household and so I would cook all these healthy meals she ended up losing like 60 pounds she she met her weight goal well did I not feel powerful in that it had it had nothing to do with her weight working a, um, a weight watchers program it just had nothing to do it had all to do with me. And so, you know, but there again, I was like being so codependent and so um, self-righteous. All of those things that are just not pleasing. And um, anyway, (coughs) I was getting more dysfunctional. Let's just put it that way. I was getting more dysfunctional. Well, after a while, that hole inside of me wasn't being filled and so it was kind of like I needed to fill it. I needed to fill it. There was just something that was missing. I'd had this alcoholic relationship that didn't fill it, overeater, that didn't fill it. Now what can I do, Lord? Oh. Get married? Is that what you would like me to do? Oh, okay. So, you know, I got up in front of our church during testimony time and I announced and I announced to the church that I was looking for a husband. (laughs) I had no idea (laughs) that on the back row there was one of you back there Who had quit drinking? (laughs) But anyway, you know, they say sick attracts sick. And so, without going into all the details of how we started dating, we started dating. And um, you know what? During that dating, and we dated about a year, I don't think he ever lied to me but once. And I looked at him, and I told him, you cannot lie to me. <laughs> you cannot. Oh, that was stupid to say. Um, <laughs> you cannot lie to me, because if you do, I can't trust you. And love cannot grow where there is no trust. I had memorized that sentence at an early age. Love cannot grow where there is no trust, and you cannot lie to me. And he said, oh, I won't do it. I will not want it. Anyway, we got married, I was 34 years old, and um, he was 34. And two weeks after we got home from the honeymoon, he started lying to me. And I immediately thought I was trapped, because Southern Baptists don't divorce. And of course, I don't know, just my dysfunction. I thought I was trapped. And there is nothing worse than to feel like you're trapped. And many of you, I'm sure, have had those feelings, that you're trapped, whether it's in a bottle or whether it's in a relationship. But being trapped is not a good feeling. And um, he was lying over just little things. He lied one time about, um, about whether or not he ate fried chicken. And he said something about fried chicken, and when I came back with a response about fried chicken, he asked me, what was I talking about? And I said, well, I'm just referring to what you just told me. And he said, I didn't tell you that. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. And then, of course, I'm getting furious because I know he did, but he had had a brownout. And he did not know he had said fried chicken, and I didn't know he... You know, but see, he wasn't drinking, so why would i why would I even know any of that? Well, our relationship got really, really bad. I mean, when I say really bad, it was it was horrible. I ended up hating the man that I married, and on the inside of me as a, as a Christian, I knew that I was supposed to love my enemies, and there I was hating my husband. And so in 1992, we got married in 88, in 1992, I cried out and I said, God, well, actually I said, Lord, help me. That's what I said. I said, Lord, change me. Now, how I knew that I needed changing, I don't know, except God's grace. That's what I call it. Because I I didn't say, Lord, please change him. Make him stop lying. Lord, please. I didn't do all that. I said, Lord, change me. By this time in 1992, my husband and I started going to counseling. Because I was having so many health problems, too. Um, I had three different doctors ask me, what is going on in your home? See, I was so out of control. I had this eye over here that when I would look through it, it looked like I was looking through Vaseline. And so one doctor told me that I had an I can't remember what what he exactly right this minute what it was, but he said it was caused by stress. And he looked at me and he said, Kathy, is your husband beating you? And I said, No. And then I was having vocal problems and I was a music teacher and my voice was my instrument, and I was having a real struggle to sing. Matter of fact, I had a hard time singing within a few weeks of our marriage when we first got married. And um, this um, T guy looked at me and said, Kathy, what's going on with you? What is going on in your home? And then I had another doctor because I was having back issues. Kathy, what is going on with you? All of this is being caused by stress. But see, you know, I don't know if you all do this, but my husband was lying, but I was lying too. I was lying to myself. I was lying to myself. I was saying, oh, it's not that bad. Oh, it's just not that bad. And yet these doctors were saying, Kathy, it is that bad. Things are going on. You need help. Well, I started going to counseling. Well, of course, my husband wanted to go with me. I think that he wanted to make sure I wasn't telling lies myself. (laughs) And, of course, he didn't want it to be his fault. And so he went to supervise And um, so we went to counseling, and it was during those first few weeks of counseling that my husband finally admitted to me that what was going on, the reason that he was lying so much, the reason that he was not coming home um, at night um, when normal people came home and things like that was because he was um, acting out on sexual addiction. And um, he, he... he he started going to s to sexaholics anonymous and when he started going to sexaholics anonymous i thought well maybe things will turn around maybe i don't know but again i didn't like my husband and um he was he was acting out on it and when i say that you know i only caught him maybe two or three times but the other times there were things that he would do that you would have to know that you would say well that's probably what he's doing. For instance, he, he was the maintenance man at my church, but he did plumbing on the side. <laughs> well, I mean, seriously, he did. But it was this one particular customer that he had in, in Warner Robins, Georgia, And he did plumbing at her house on Friday nights (laughs) for a couple of Friday nights in a row. And, I, you know, why was I supposed to believe that? And yet he wanted me to. And so I'm thinking, that doesn't make common sense to me. That's not logical. And he would come home like at 10 o'clock at night. I've never had a plumber stay at my house that long. (laughs) I mean, I guess if you had an emergency, you know, and that you were, they were called in the middle of the night. But you know, if you if they leave like a reasonable time, like five o'clock in the afternoon, I've never, you know, especially two Fridays in a row. So it was little things like that. But guess what? <laughs> He's, you know, besides, um, well, I was about to get ahead of myself there. But but I ended up going to Essanon, which is the Al-Anon program for Sexaholics Anonymous, if you don't know, there is such. And, um, and they're the ones that helped me break my denial. They're the ones that helped me break my denial. So anyway, in 1992, I cry out to God, Lord, change me. I was having all these health problems and things like that. So let me just tell you how I got to these rooms. Um, I was teaching Sunday school at my church and I was teaching the college-age people. And one of the girls that came to my class, she was a visitor, and she was coming every other weekend. And I didn't know her, but finally I went up to her, probably the third time she was ever there, and I asked her, and if I said her name from the podium, you might would know her um, because I think she's done some things in your program a good bit. But anyway, she told me, she said, I am um, in in treatment in Atlanta, and they let me come home every other weekend. And so I come home to see my mom, and that's why I'm visiting your class every other weekend. So anyway, we just kind of started a a relationship and uh, would talk and things like that. And she asked me, she said, do you know anything about alcoholism or alcoholics? I said, no. And, um, you know, I don't. And, you know, I didn't tell her I lived this old... Southern Baptist sheltered life, but I, you know, I just didn't. And so she asked me to go to an AA meeting. And she said, I'm going to be picking up a chip. I can't remember what, you know, if it was 90 days or what. But anyway, I'm going to pick up a chip. Would you like to go with me? And I said, Yeah, I'll go with you. Well, I went to that meeting, and that was back when everybody smoked in the meetings. And you got to remember, sheltered me. I went in there, and the first thing I thought was, oh, my gosh, everybody's smoking. So the first impression, alcohol, I thought all alcoholics smoked. And then I looked around the room, and then my second impression was, ooh, all alcoholics have tattoos. (laughs) And that's what I thought. I, I didn't have any idea. I didn't have any idea until much later that alcoholics were just nice, kind people who had an a allergy to something. And so um, I went to that meeting. Well, that was fine. And then the next time she said, Kathy, I'm going to be sharing my story. Would you like to go with me? And I said, I'll go with you. And that's when my life changed. Um, it was in June of 1993. And it was after the meeting. And I know you all... Maybe not us as much as you all, but you all have meetings after the meeting in the parking lot. And in the parking lot meeting, she was having a parking lot meeting with her buddies from AA. And I was sitting in my little yellow Toyota by myself, (laughs) you know, just sitting there. Well, this very brave alcoholic came up to me. His name was Ron. And if he's in this room, I would not know him. i I, I don't even know what he looked like. I just remember his name. Because God used Ron to guide me and to put me on a journey. And this was um, in June of 93. And Ron came up to me and he said, and, you know, I rolled my window down. I'm not going to be impolite. And I rolled my window down and he said, are you an alcoholic? And I said, no. And he said, well, do you do drugs? I said, no. <laughs> and he said... He said, well, how about your husband? Is he an alcoholic? I said, no. And he said, well, does he do drugs? No. And um, he didn't ask me about sex sexaholism. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, every question he asked me, I said, no. And that's why I would like to meet him again, because I want him to know I have a better vocabulary today. <laughs> but the last question that he asked me got me. And he said, well, are you happy? And I said, no. And he said, have you ever heard of the program called Al-Anon? No. (laughs) And he said, up this street, the exact same street we're on, at this church, they have a meeting up there twice a week. If you would go to that meeting for 90 times, your life will change. The prayer earlier, Lord, change me, your life will change. Is that God's grace? I happen to think so. Is that God's mercy? I happen to think so. Is that God's direction? I choose to trust so. And so that's how I got into the rooms of Al-Anon. And it was June 29th, 1993. I walked into my first meeting. And it was a speaker meeting. And the lady who was speaking, her name was Ruth Chester. And she stood up at that podium, and she told me, not me, but she did. It was to me, but everybody else, that she would just go off like a skyrocket. And she did her hands up like this, and I would go off like a skyrocket. And it was over things like fried chicken. (laughs) And so I thought, oh, my gosh. And I had never known somebody to be kind of like me. And all of a sudden, you know, because I thought I was unique. And all of a sudden, that just drew me. Well, you know, I'm sitting in the back and I'm kind of hiding and everything. But I heard that and it made me want to come back. And so I came back to the very next meeting. And at that meeting, there were like only about six people. I think I was the seventh one there. And I just cried. But what they shared in that meeting was was what I was feeling on the inside. I couldn't talk. I couldn't share. I was so bottled up. My dad had told me to keep my mouth shut. Don't you dare open your mouth. I don't want to hear your opinion. And therefore, I had become a a nobody, really, on the inside, spiritually especially. And I just did not have a voice when I walked into this program. I had no voice. And so... (coughs) I started going to Al-Anon. Again, it's by God's grace. I felt like an imposter because in our program it says the only requirement for membership is that you, gosh I wish I had this memorized, but anyway, it says something like the only requirement for membership is that you have a what? That you know an alcoholic or you know or had a relationship, well, I didn't know anybody. My husband wasn't drinking. He said when we first married, he used to drink, he used to do drugs, but he had stopped all of that. The only thing he hadn't stopped was the sexual addiction and um so I didn't know an alcoholic at that time because see, even in my own mind, that roommate that I had lived with. What had I done? I had denied that that had affected me. I didn't know an alcoholic. And so I hid in the rooms for almost a year. I did not speak except to read. You know, if it came time for me to read the steps, I would help read the steps and things like that. But I didn't share. They knew nothing about me in those rooms because I felt like an imposter. Um, It took me... At least, I'm going to say 10 months before I ever asked somebody to be my sponsor. And when I did, I didn't know you were supposed to call them. I just thought, that, okay, you know, you're, she's your sponsor, but I didn't know you were supposed to use them. And... Um, so I didn't start using my sponsor until a while later too. So, you know, um, you know, it just it, God just moves you along. You have to break through the layers of denial the the way it, it does. I couldn't work the steps when I got here. I was too I was too chaotic. I was too emotionally um, everything. I, I don't know. I just couldn't work the steps. I mean, the first thing y'all said was we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. I didn't know anybody with alcohol. And that our lives had become unmanageable. Mine mine wasn't unmanageable. I was still teaching. I was still going to church. I was still teaching Sunday school. I was leading the music at church. I was doing all these things, and I thought my life was being manageable. So that first step, nah, I can't do that. So they told me, Kathy, (laughs) work the slogans. Oh, work the slogans? You mean like think? Think? Oh, no, 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 no. Um, what about easy does it, Kathy? You really need easy does it. Um, you know, easy does it is a really good one for you. What about one day at a time, Kathy? Oh, because what about, what about, what about, what about? And I don't know. I just went through all these things, and I, so I had to just work the slogans. And... um And believe it or not, my husband picked up his one-year chip, but after that, he could not pick up another chip. And so because of that, in 1994, we just really started having a really big emotional slide. Um, I don't know. I was in the program probably about three and a half years. I had started working the steps through the Essanon program. I started working the steps and things like that. But anyway, I ended up being the GR for my my Al-Anon group. I was going to Al-Anon very faithfully. I started picking up more meetings. Um, During the summers when I was out of school, I ended up going to eight meetings a week, and part of that was Essanon. Because I just needed the help. I knew I needed help. Things were just crazy up here, and I knew I needed help. Emotionally, I needed the help. Spiritually, I needed the help. How did I know that God would ever, when he created me, how did I know that it was going to be part of my journey to find an Al-Anon program to help me go through my life? So anyway, um I became the GR of our group, and um, it was during that time that I really realized it was, it was around 1997 that I realized I could not keep living the way I was living. And so I filed for divorce, and um, my husband, uh, about a month later because he, you know, wanted to know why I was divorcing him and all this kind of stuff. About a month later he went and filed for a divorce and I said he said, I want you to know I filed for a divorce against you and I said, Okay He said, Well just in case you change your mind, I just need to make sure you knew I want to divorce you. See, we were <laughs> we had such a toxic relationship you know, that it was, it was one-upmanship. You know, he was going to do me better than I was going to do him, etc. You know, so if I just caved in and didn't divorce him, you know, but he just, he, that showed me right there that he truly didn't know me. I would have never filed for a divorce if, I, if it was a bluff. I would have never done that. I do things intentionally and deliberately most of the time. Um, but when we divorced in 98, March of 98, I really felt like a failure in Al-Anon. As I said, I was a GR at that time, representing my group to the assembly. But I felt like I was a failure, and I thought, maybe I should drop out of Al-Anon. Maybe, maybe I don't need to do this because um, I didn't, you know, there was something in our pr- program that says that you can um, live with an alcoholic, whether you can be happy, let's see, what, what, well, what, that, my people know that sentence. Um, Laughter but anyway, I thought, I thought, well, you know, I didn't do it right. I, I, I ended up, I couldn't live with it. I just couldn't live with it. And um, so I was kind of at a crossroad. What would I do? Would I, would I quit or would I stay? Well, my first sponsor, God bless her heart. We buried her three weeks ago. God bless her heart. She helped me through all of the crazy times. do y'all have a do you have a sponsor or did you have a sponsor that helped you through all of that crazy when you first got here? God bless them. she's up there in heaven right now, and God's saying, "I know child I know um but but um she helped me those first eight years through all of that chaos. I was calling her sometimes every single day. Um because I finally learned that that's what you do with a sponsor if you're chaotic and um then i she she quit the program she um she quit the program and um, stayed out for several years. She ended up coming back in. But, but when she quit the program, she dropped me as her sponsee. And that just devastated me. And it took me almost a year because it just kind of sent me... Uh, I don't like change a lot. And um, so she it kind of sent me reeling. And um, it took me about a year before I got another sponsor. And so I got another sponsor. And this sponsor was a godsend. She really helped me understand that it is through service work that you grow. I don't know if that's what you do in the AA program, but that's what we we say in Al-Anon. And we have choices, and a lot of people choose not to do service work. But in my opinion, and it is just my opinion, the icing on the cake and the whipped cream and the cherry comes with it through service work. And it is, um, it is just wonderful to, because in those relationships through service, it's where you get to practice a program that helps you become the better person. And so um, not only did I do the GR job, I ended up being like the district treasurer and then I became the district representative and and then I started at the state level and I I started um, doing several positions like that. Right now, I'm the current delegate for the state of Georgia. I finally found my voice. <laughs> and um, I'm, I'm about to rotate out. Um, in December, I will rotate out. And the area in September elected me to be their chairman for the assembly. So I'm about to do that. So I continue to um, you know, serve Al-Anon. But um, in 2011, I really saw the need to um, get a new sponsor because I just felt like I needed to go in a different direction spiritually, and I needed to grow in a different direction. And so God gave me the the person that I needed, and she has really helped me tremendously. She took, she took me back through the steps. And so, um, you know, it doesn't matter to me um, that I've been, I know I've been in the program 22 years, which is nothing compared to some of you and how long you've been here, but... Personally, I just think we need to sharpen our tools sometimes. And so even though we may have gone through the steps one time, maybe or, or two times, or three times, or four times, maybe we need to go through them again. And so this sponsor has taken me back through the steps recently. Today, I continue to go through to meetings on a regular basis. My home group meets twice a week. And so I, I, I try to be there for every single time that um, I'm in town. Um, Let me tell you a little bit about my dad. My dad will be 87 in December. And um, my mother um, was was diagnosed in 2008 with a terminal lung disease that was caused by rheumatoid arthritis. It was called interstitial lung disease. I had never heard of it before in my life. But what it does is it just kind of hardens and paralyzes your lungs. And uh, my mother died um, April the 16th, 2009. But before she died, my dad started depending on me to help him with my mother. I would go over there almost every day and um, I would be with them Especially after she got in hospice in the home. And um, my dad started wanting to hear my opinion. And he wanted me to reason things out with him. And I cannot tell you how, what a blessing that is to this day. Is he still harsh? Absolutely. Can he and I still butt heads? Absolutely. Do we cross paths? Sometimes. But if I keep our, our talks on the braves, on football and it's lucky for me that he taught me how to love sports and so being that tomboy you know but as long as we can do that and I tell him you know like I told him I'm coming here and that you know four days ago I was asked to tell him story well you know he doesn't make any comments about that okay you know I mean you know he he doesn't get this he he really thinks it's a cult he he just doesn't understand and you know I've accepted that But today we can stay in the same room together, and it's all because of the Al-Anon program that has helped me change. I'm the one who has changed. I'm the one who, when I was taught, I was absolutely taught that if you had an opinion different than me, then you were stupid. But see, when I got into this program, I learned that's not true at all. I, I learned you know and is that not embarrassing to say that when you're 40 something years old or or 39 when i got here i think i was when is that not embarrassing to say that i thought you were stupid if you didn't think like me i mean how arrogant is that how self-righteous is that and and you know it's embarrassing today to say that because but that's the way i was raised and that's the way i thought and so um <coughs> That relationship has changed. Now, today, I do have um, a nephew who is out there writing his story. I wish that my brother and his wife would come to our program. They need this program. To be honest with you, my entire family needs this program because all of us had the same mama who was affected by my grandfather's alcoholism. But my family has chosen not to, not to do this. And, um, you know... How blessed am i! How blessed am I that God chose me to put me here I mean that's just that's just that is the ice icing and the whipped cream and the cherry on top, and then I get to do service um the tools that this program has given me the steps, a sponsor, the slogans um the fellowship, the literature, service, and more. Those are the things that have given, the, the they've helped change the traditions that I had in my own family. And they've given me the new traditions where I can apply them to my daily life. So I've had the courage to change. Where that courage comes from, I don't know. But all I can say is it has to be coming from God. It's just like standing up here. I you know, this is not what I would choose for, for me to do. My seat's right down there. I've been sitting there since yesterday when Lisa and Tim were telling their stories. But this evidently was God's journey for me. And so I've had that courage to change. And I've, and I, you know what I appreciate so much is that you all accepted me. You said, Kathy, you are weird. You are really weird. But it's okay. It's okay. We love you anyway and um and i thank you for being willing to listen and I, it's just been a pleasure to share with you thank you